Welcome to Bible Greek VPod's Intermediate Greek Program. This is Lesson 6. In this lesson, you will learn the locative case, and then we will look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. But first I want to look at the purpose of studying biblical languages. Why do we study the biblical languages? The importance is placed in three words. Observation, interpretation, and finally application. You've heard this said a couple of times before, the observation, what does the text say grammatically? And then interpretation, what does the text mean? And then finally the application, how does the text apply to me? First, the observation. There are a couple of things that you should be as a scientist of the word, and that employs the function of observation. Observation has several parts to it. One is word order. Just observing the text, and grammatically, word order can be very important. In the Greek, as you know, you can place words in different word order and still come out with a good understanding of what it means. You can't necessarily do that in the English. But in the Greek, you can. So the word order can mean a lot. It can mean, for example, an emphasis. If you want to emphasize something, you can place some words at the head of the sentence, and then that serves to emphasize things. Another thing that is important in observation is repetition. For example, double negatives. That's not appropriate in English, but in Greek it's very acceptable. So the, the no not would, be, would mean in no way or absolutely not. It's a very imperative not. Or you could have things like personal pronouns. Uh, with the verbs like um, ego I me, the famous uh, John statement, the ego I me, I, I am, that serves to, uh, that repetition serves to imply something, some st- brings to importance to something or means something. A third thing about observation is word definitions. In the Greek, there are oftentimes many words used to translate in the English, um, for example, no has many words in the Greek, but it's all translated just no in the, uh, in the English. So word definition is, is important. And let me give you an example. Uh, someone came up to me the other day and was asking, is the word in Genesis for desire, the woman shall desire the husband, is that the same as the word desire in the book of Daniel chapter 11? where in Daniel, chapter 11, verse 37, talks about this person who will regard neither the God of his fathers nor nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. Is that word desire the same in both? Genesis and for this Antichrist here. And no, they're, they're different words altogether. The word for desire, the woman for the man has the idea of overabundance, a desire that is over, overpowering, if you will, a controlling desire. Whereas the desire here in Daniel chapter 11, he shall not desire women, has the idea of pleasurable desire. Um, so it's a fleshly lustful desire. It's a very different. So word definitions are very important. The other thing dealing with observation is context. What is the immediate context? That should be foremost 
in the eyes of your interpretation is, is that idea of context. Observe the context. And then finally, the identification of the who, the what, why, where, and how that, observe, that it's observable in that immediate context. These are the things that your elementary school English teacher um, taught everyone. So that is what we want to hold on to and is very important in observation. Now let's move on to our study for the day and our grammar to- topic is the locative. The locative case is the case of location or position. It shares the same form as the dative and instrumental but is distinguished by its use. And the, the translation is usually uses the word in. For example, wheel is a sun when used with a definite article to wheel in the sun. The root idea of the locative is clear and its application is readily identifiable. The word comes from the Latin locus, um, a place, a position, a period, or a condition. The case indicates a point within limits and it corresponds to the English in, on, among, at, or by. In every instance, it is not hard to identify the locative case. Let's look at how it's used. The locative of place. The locative of place serves to limit spatially. It is used in the sense most frequently with prepositions. For example, John 21.8. The disciples came in the boat. It's easy to see there that in the boat gives them a spatial location. So it serves to limit where their location is. They're in the boat. Then we have a locative of time. The locative of time serves, serves to limit temporally. The usage serves to indicate the time when the action of the main verb takes place. So, for example, in Matthew 20, 19. And in the third day, he will be raised up. Serves to limit temporally. And, of course, when you limit temporally, it comes in the action of the verb. And so it affects that verb or works with the verb. Then there is the locative of sphere. The locative of sphere serves to limit spherically. Within the sphere of a thing, this is most often a metaphorical use. The limit is logical rather than spatial or temporal, and it's confining the idea within the bounds of a sphere of a thing. For example, in Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is, notice this, in Christ Jesus. See, that limits that redemption within the sphere of what Christ has done. The sphere of Jesus Christ himself. It's a very important case. Now let's move on to our text for the day. 1 John 2, 3-6. I've titled this, Knowledge Applied to Life. Let's take a look at the first phrase of verse 3. And in this we continue knowing that we have known him. That's an odd little statement. We continue knowing that we have known him. John links his previous thought with the conjunction phrase, and in this, or in connection with this, that demonstrative pronoun 
hutos. It's a dative, neuter, singular. This, it points back to the message as the custom by the use of the neuter. Namely, the important fact is the great propitiation we have in Jesus Christ and the believer's acknowledgement, his confession and repentance of sin. The demonstrative points to our gnoskomen. Notice that, the gnoskomen. It's a present active indicative, first person plural. We are knowing. A couple of things to notice about this. One is he is including himself. Who is he talking about? The first section here in verse 3 is the true knowledge. He's going to give a true knowledge, a false knowledge, and then return back to a true knowledge. But here we continue to know. We are knowing that we have past tense and completed, have known him. The perfect tense is the second gnosko. Again, it's the first person plural, perfect tense. It makes this knowledge past tense and the effect continues up to the time of writing. This knowledge is experiential knowledge. It relates to knowing by experience or doing. The perfect tense is a completed act. In the past, John's audience came to know Jesus Christ, that righteous one. The propitiation of the world as their Savior, and John reminds them that they continue to know this fact. To know God is to have fellowship with God, as John has already spoken about. Knowledge is equated with light in the sense of the Spirit's work in the believer. That work involves experiential knowledge. That's what he's pounding the fact of here. Spiritual maturity occurs as that Holy Spirit illuminates the truth to the believer. The second phrase there. If we might attend carefully to his commandments. So the first phrase, and in this we continue knowing that we have known him, comes back to if we might attend carefully to his commandments. Knowing this fact enables us to attend to the work of God. That conditional particle, ain, if, or in case, introduces the probable possibility that defines the conditional clause that brings to the front of this argument that the believer should attend to God's work that is commanded of us. The word for command is the subject of this phrase and is the Greek entole. It means an order, a command, a charge, or a commandment. It comes from the compound in, you hear that in, by, and telos, end or custom. And it has the main idea of anything within the realm of the established custom of God. The New Testament custom that God gave the disciples was to make disciples in Matthew 28. And being a disciple means abiding in him. Observing all things I have commanded you is how Matthew puts that in that Matthew 28 passage. Not only to make disciples, but observing all things I have commanded you, and doing his work. And along the way, one will grow in the knowledge of Christ. He or she will truly become a disciple. The main verb of this phrase has a strong sense. The word is tero. It's a present active subjunctive, first person plural, to attend to carefully, to take care of, to keep 
to reserve. One sure sign of a sanctified Christian is that he or she attends carefully to the commandments of God. This is the then part of the conditional phrase. If you know him, then you will attend to his commandments. The knowledge of Christ and the love of Christ have a common result. That is, attending to his commandments. John says in his gospel, in John 14, verses 15 through 17, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Notice that. He doesn't leave us alone, abandoned. He gives us a helper. That he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So he's our helper. The Holy Spirit is that agent that works in us. So what are the commandments spoken of here? Are the commandments related to the law? Did Christ not come to fulfill the law? And indeed free us from the law? Well, first, the commandments of God have come at various times throughout history. God commanded Adam not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But we know what happened. They ate. God gave man commandments before the selection of the chosen people, before the selection of Abraham, commanding them not to kill, but they killed. God gave commandments before the patriarchs, before the law and the covenant with Moses. Mankind failed. The law formalized with some 613 statues that was given to Israel, each pointing to his sinfulness of mankind and the righteousness of God. What is spoken of here is the commandments of him. That is the commandments, plural, of Jesus Christ. These are the commandments that Christ himself gave to the disciples. Why are they not listed in the Old Testament fashion like that found in the book of Leviticus? The commands are all lined up in logical fashion in the Old Testament. But when Jesus is questioned about the first commandment, he provides two in response, not one. Notice Mark 12, 28 through 34. There's two commandments he's given. First, love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There are two. They ask him one, he gives them two. The core, the root here is love. Love your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And then the second is love your neighbor as yourself. John will highlight this through the major part of this book. The love concept. There is no legalism with the New Testament gospel of grace. The answer Jesus gave the scribes has its root in the character and holiness of God. It involves a love relationship with him. It is simple and involves a personal relationship with him, and that relationship involves giving him glory and praise, acknowledging our weaknesses, and relying upon him. When Cain brought his offering before the Lord, God called it an evil work. But also notice... 
He provided a way to make it right, as the Lord tells Cain. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. In other words, God seems to give him a way to make it right. And though the text does not say how, the implication is confession, calling it like God calls it, sin. Then repenting, turning from that sin, and coming before God with an acceptable attitude and offering. That is, doing it right with the right attitude. In contrast to the Old Testament commandments, the New Covenant believer is given a helper. The Holy Spirit is helping man, making the obedience to the commandments of Christ something that is desirable in the new man. In a very real and practical sense, this reflects the result of true knowledge of God. Realizing that Christ died in our place is a profound motivator. But mankind can have a short memory. He can be easily distracted like a sheep. A constant redirecting of his attention is needed. And the convicting work of the Holy Spirit helps the believer in knowledge, understanding, and finally action. Let's move on to verse 4. Let me look at the false knowledge. The one who says that I have known him and the commands of him are not kept, he is a liar and in this the truth is not. That's a pretty strong statement. Now John addresses a certain believer who claims to know Christ but lives a life not set apart from the world. It's a life that is not committed to the commands of Christ. The one who says is a participle. It's a participle from Lego. It's a present active participle, nominative masculine singular, holagon. And it has that definite article, to say or to speak. It points to a person who is a verbal noun. That is a person who is known by speaking, and in particular, the thing that he speaks about is that he has known, ginosko, that perfect active indicative first person singular, I have known Christ. The perfect tense means the action occurred in the past and the effect continues up to the time of writing. This person professes to be a Christian and is known to be a Christian. But instead of keeping the commandments of Christ, as in verse 3, this person is one who is known for not keeping, in a habitual sense, his commandments. That present tense brings that out. This person is not one who keeps some but not others. This person is known for his open non-support of Christ's commandments. The result is that John calls him a suktes, a liar. And his stance on the subject of obedience to the commandments of Christ is false. Further, in this thing there is no truth. That is, in his profession of knowing Christ and lack of walking with Christ, he is inconsistent with being changed. And truth is compromised because he is uncommitted to the commands of Christ. Let me be clear here. Some would call this person not a Christian. 
It is clear that this person is a Christian by the use of his knowledge. It is a true knowledge. Let's move on to verse 5. The true knowledge. Obedience reflects perfected knowledge. But whoever might keep the word of him, in contrast to the previous verse, the contrastive conjunction day, but, is used. It's indicating in contrast to the behavior of the liar above, who is immature, who claims the power of salvation, but exhibits no growth, no putting away of sin, no changed life. John now moves back to the person who possesses a knowledge that is mature or maturing. He is sensitive to the Spirit and one who is growing in Christ. This person, whoever it may be, is identified by the relative pronoun hos, who, which, or what, and most translate as whoso, indicating that within this set of believers there are those who do grow in knowledge, who will mature, and the possibility is there for all who are believers. The particle ain has no exact English equivalent, and it serves to point out the relative clause. As Robertson says, indefinite relative clause with modal and and a present active subjunctive is translated whoever keeps on keeping. In this case, the subjunctive verb Tero, it's a present active subjunctive, third person singular, to attend to carefully or to take care of, to keep or guard, is seen as more probable, a more certain outcome of yielding to the Spirit. Notice the relationship given between the commandments of Christ and the word of Him. The two are spoken of here kind of synonymously. The logos, The word, with the different article, uh, the word or speech, is the direct object of the phrase and is the same play on words Jesus used in John 14. Notice this, John 14, verse 21 through 24. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Notice that tie-in to love. John is moving to a new section here, the section of love. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Let's move on to the second phrase. In this truly the love of God has been made perfect, or better, truly in this message the love of God has been made perfect. The idea of the neuter dative demonstrative with the preposition makes the message, that is, the knowledge of Christ and subsequent reaction of the believer, the indirect object. This means there is a purpose to the message that is rooted in love. The word for truly is the adverb aletheos, truly or of truth in reality, most certainly. It has as its root truth. In this message truly is found the love of God. The Apostle is moving to one of the greatest love sections of the Bible. The love that God possesses towards mankind is something that is hard to define. There are three words for love in the Greek. The first is eros, which is sexual. It's not really love at all. 
Then there is philo, which is friendly love. And finally, there is love referred to here, the agape love, which seeks goodwill, affection. Finally, this love is complete and passive. Notice that. The perfect tense, and it's a passive voice, is used of this strong word, teleo. It's a perfect passive indicative for third person singular. To make perfect or complete. To bring to an end with a sense of a goal to accomplish. God seeks to bring our growth in knowledge of Him to an end goal. That is, knowledge of Him involves action. And that action is specifically keeping His word. The perfect is passive, which has God as the agent. That is, the love of God has been brought to its goal by God Himself and not by ourselves. Some tried to make this complicated by listing out all the commandments, but this is not the Apostle's point here. That is a return to the law. That is a legalistic fruit-counting scheme that is far from the intent of what is presented here. Remember, context is love. John is addressing the other extreme. The one who does not want to live by any laws. But that should not drive us to the opposite extreme. And what John is talking about here is the love principle that Jesus spoke of. It involves a loving relationship where man comes to the knowledge of God in a growing relationship that involves changing one's behavior because we love the one who died for us. It is a picture of a husband and a wife where the desire to please the other so rules one's manner of life because the desire is to place the spouse before self. This is a selfless love where God comes first and that kind of relationship is a perfected relationship. That's what's seen here. It's viewed as a perfected relationship. Notice how John moved through this epistle. He talked about fellowship. That's that relationship part. Then he moved over to knowledge. And he's moving to love. See how he's working there? The next phrase. In this we know that we are in him. This perfected knowledge results in a person whose actions and attitude clearly reveal that we are truly a Christian. In this is again used to reflect the idea of the context of the message and the certainty of its outcome. In an obedient, God-fearing, God-loving manner of life, we collectively know that we are in Him. The word for know is in the present tense, that same word, ganasco, to know, learn to know or understand, and it means we collectively continue to know, hote, that we are in a state of being in Him. In Him is a technical term, meaning that we are secure in Christ and is a statement of being a Christian. When you say in Him, that implies the church. This is not an Old Testament saint but is exclusively referring to Christians who profess to believe in Jesus Christ 
and the New Testament message of the gospel of Christ. When I say the gospel of Christ, you can search on that, and you'll find the gospel of Christ, one place is Romans 1.6, and it refers specifically to this message about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. This serves as a test, what John is talking about here, for the Christian. How does one know he is walking as a Christian? That's what he's asking. The question is, how does one know he's walking as a Christian? Well, First John says, does he say he knows him? That is Christ. Next, the question is, does his action reflect his testimony? That is, is he in fellowship with believers and walking consistent with Christ? Then, Is he truthful about his sin, or does he claim to be perfected here on earth? That was the argument. The Gnostic had, they thought they could be perfected here on earth. They had secret knowledge. And finally, does he abide in Christ? Does he walk as Christ did? This little letter presents some very practical truths about who those who profess to be Christian. And John has a lot more to say concerning those in the church. John is addressing real issues here that are in that early church that he has a problem with. They were, in that early church, confused by false teaching of others. And there were some who were professing falsely to be Christians because they denied the deity of Christ. John's test for knowing whether or not you're a Christian or not. Do you deny the deity of Christ? Here, that's not the question. Here is the question of of obedience. Finally, verse 6. The one who says in him abides, he owes himself also to walk even as he walked. While the first part of a true knowledge of Christ is a perfected knowledge and involves a loving relationship, the second part involves the believer actively pursuing a life consistent with Christ's will. The one who has a healthy relationship with God will pursue those activities that please God. The one who says is an active participle. Again, from Lego. The active voice means that this person who professes to abide in Christ is really abiding in Christ. That is what the active voice means. The subject is actively performing the action. Recall that the participle will get the verbal attributes from the main verb. So the main verb of this phrase is afelo. It's a present active indicative, third person singular, to owe, to be bound, um, to be one's duty, And it makes this an ethical or moral subject in nature. The participle makes this a description. One could say an occupation or a calling. It describes the type of person, namely one that testifies that he or she is an active believer who abides, mellow, he remains, um, he waits for, he abides, he remains, in Christ. To abide in Christ means to possess an inward, enduring personal communion or fellowship 
with Christ. To live a life in word and deed according to the word of Christ. To obey his commands in a loving way. The last part of this verse moves the reader from knowledge to deed. The far demonstrative, ekonos, it's in the nominative case. That is not even used in most translations because it seems redundant. It seems awkward in the English. But this this distant demonstrative points to Christ as he walked on earth some 40 or 50 years before the writing. Even as that one walked, is how you could say, back when he was walking on the earth, the conjunction chi indeed in this same manner, thus continues to walk. Here the force of the present infinitive comes alive in an active manner of life in Christ. In essence, what John describes in these verses is the difference between a believer and a disciple. A believer is justified, and he has a relationship with Christ, but it's superficial. It's immature, and selfish. He knows only unconditional benefits, but is not active and is still in his flesh. Whereas a disciple is one who is justified and is cooperating in the process of sanctification. He is yielding to the Spirit and is in fellowship with Christ, maturing in Christ, and has a sacrificial attitude knowing the difference between the unconditional benefits, that is being saved, of being in Christ, and the conditional benefits, which produce fruit. Oh, what a great book this is. I hope you enjoyed this section, and I pray that you would translate the next section, 1 John 2, 7 and 8, and come back for the next lesson.